This is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Reeducation. The theme of today's show is crime in San Francisco, and my guest is Richie Greenberg, founder of the city's campaign to recall San Francisco's district attorney, Chesa Bodine. The movement that we built must continue to grow. It must continue to demand that San Francisco's district attorney's office makes this city safer for all of us. It must, it must demand that San Francisco make it easier to get help than it is to get high on our streets. It must demand that we stop using the jail as the primary place to treat people suffering from mental illness. It must demand that we test every single rape kit that we built. The movement must demand police accountability. Ending racial disparities at every step of the criminal justice system. A system that works for all of us, not just the rich and well-connected. But listen, we have our work cut out for us. This is not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. The POA is not done. The machine's not done. We have work to do, and we need to do it together. Back when we started this campaign, a year ago, remember where we started, a year ago, we did not know what the outcome would be. But we made an intentional, risky decision to be detailed and specific in our policy proposals. It's not what everybody advised us to do. It's not what the other campaigns did, for obvious reasons, because the attacks the POA pushed out over these last two weeks were all based on specific, concrete proposals that we made that we didn't have to make to run this campaign. But we made them for a reason. We made them because I need you. I need every one of you to hold me accountable to those promises. Will you do that? Will you do that? The voice you just heard was San Francisco's district attorney on the night he won the election in 2019. His name is Chesa Bodine, and nearly three years later, you could say the voters of San Francisco are holding him accountable, just not in the way he envisioned. On June 7th, Bodine will be facing a recall election, and it looks like he is going to lose. To hear the district attorney tell it, he is unfairly the target of Republicans, the police union, and the super wealthy. He is being blamed for a deterioration of public safety in San Francisco that's not his fault. Crime has spiked in the city because of the pandemic and the economic consequences of the measures to mitigate it. Not his many reforms, so he says. Here he is on Democracy Now! Thanks, Amy. Yeah, I certainly expected and hoped to be able to buckle down and, and do the work of fixing our broken and dysfunctional and failed criminal justice system for four years after I was elected to a four-year term. But you're right, in, in California, recalls are all the rage. And the folks who are behind them, as we saw with the attempted recall of Governor Gavin Newsom, are Republicans and police union operatives and ultra-right-wing groups that have learned the hard way that they cannot win at the ballot box if they put their candidates or their ideas to the voters. In other words, their only path 
to winning is not to actually tell voters what their policies or principles or values or even their candidates are, but rather to attack those of us that have won elections democratically. But this isn't really true. Residents of San Francisco, you could say, have been mugged by reality. It's not just that crime has spiked. It's that Bodine has used his prosecutorial discretion to refrain from charging dangerous felons. For example, when Bodine came into office in 2020, Troy McAllister was imprisoned and waiting for trial after being arrested in 2015 for armed robbery. He faced 25 years to life. But Bodine ordered his release. McAllister would go on to be arrested several more times over the next nine months while on parole, but was never charged. And then on New Year's Eve in 2021, McAllister committed another armed robbery, sped away in a stolen car while intoxicated, and killed two pedestrians in the vehicle before crashing and fleeing the scene. Even one of Bodine's prosecutors acknowledged in court that the district attorney's office had missed the spiral of this man's criminality. As Nima Rahimi, a member of California Democratic Party's executive board, wrote this month in an op-ed, the buck stops with Bodine. These deaths rest on his shoulders, and this alone is enough reason to recall him. It's become a pattern. Bodine wouldn't charge criminals with gang-related offenses. He stopped prosecuting local drug dealers, claiming bizarrely that they were often the victims of human trafficking. He intervened at times with his own prosecutors to press them to lower their requests for sentencing recommendations. Here's a former San Francisco prosecutor who worked in his office, Brooke Jenkins, who resigned from Bodine's office in October, speaking to a group of citizens earlier this year. Um, the final straw for me was uh, I was in the middle of a jury trial on a very, very heinous and brutal murder case. And I had secured a conviction from the jury in that case, but Chesa uh, decided to intervene at the second phase of that trial, which was the defendant had pled that he was insane at the time. And so we were at the phase of the trial where the defense had to prove that he was insane. And Chesa instructed me to agree that the defendant was insane. Uh, that was without any conversation with me about the facts of the case, um, about the expert reports. He didn't request to read the case file. He didn't request to read the reports from the four experts who had interviewed and assessed the defendant. Um, he simply made the decision based on uh, an email from the public defender who uh, was a former colleague of his and actually a former office mate of his at the public defender's office. And what most people don't know is that it's not just about whether um, the person goes to prison or a mental hospital when they're deemed insane. Um, when you are found to be insane, uh, you are eligible to petition for your release within one year of your conviction. Um, and so this was a person who was going to be eligible to return back into our community, um, actually just in a few short months from now. And I believe that the way that he went about making that decision was completely irresponsible and reckless. He didn't consult with the, the family members that were supporting the prosecution. Um, and like I said, he didn't even take the time to get a full understanding of the evidence within the case and the thoughts and perceptions of, of myself who had been in the courtroom trying that case for seven weeks, questioning every single witness that took the stand. In some ways, none of this is surprising. 
Bodine is part of a new group of progressive prosecutors, often funded by dark money, that have been running for and winning office in major cities in the last few years. So while Bodine's recall is a local story, it's also a test for this national movement. It's a national movement that seeks decarceration or alternatives to prison as a means of punishing criminals. Now, this is very different than criminal justice reform, something that I and many others across the ideological spectrum support. More accountability for police who abuse and harm suspects, changing punitive drug laws or inflexible sentencing guidelines. Now, that counts as reform. But declaring that most property crimes will not even be prosecuted, as Bodine and others have done, well, that gets into more radical territory. And Chesa Bodine comes from American radical royalty. On October 20th, 1981, Chesa Bodine's biological parents, David Gilbert and Kathy Bodine, left their infant son with a babysitter and proceeded to participate in the robbery of a Brinks armored truck at the Nanuit Mall in upstate New York. They drove the getaway car for a cadre from the Black Liberation Army and stole nearly $2 million in cash. The heist went badly. The crew shot the security guards for the Brinks truck and later at a traffic stop killed two police officers, one of whom, Weverly Brown, was ironically the first black officer of the police department of Nyack, New York. Gilbert and Bodine were brought to justice and went to jail. Now, they did not rob the Brinks truck for the money. They did it for the cause. Both were former leaders of the Weather Underground, who between 1969 and 1974 conducted a series of bombings. They bombed Congress, the Pentagon, and other targets in the hopes of fomenting revolution. And while the Weather Underground's bombings only destroyed property, and they were careful, after their first year at least, to set off their bombs so that no people would be around, throughout the 1970s, weather was a top focus of the FBI. So with his biological parents in prison, Chessa was raised by two other Weather Underground leaders, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. Unlike Gilbert and Bodine, Ayers and Dorn had the good fortune of having their civil rights abused by the FBI. Despite a 1972 court ruling explicitly forbidding the FBI from breaking into the homes of suspects without a warrant, the Bureau's black bag unit continued this practice against Weather Underground and a few other groups. The Justice Department, beginning under President Ford and continuing into the Carter administration, actually prosecuted very senior FBI officials, including David Felt, who would later be revealed as the source known as Deep Throat in the Watergate scandal. And these officials who approved this illegal snooping, some of them went to jail. As a result, Ayers and Dorn only spent a few years in prison as they prepared their own case against the FBI. Here's an interview with Chesa Bodine's adopted parents, Ayers and Dorn, with Phil Donahue at the end of 1981. He makes a fairly obvious point that still escapes many radicals to this day, that America cannot really be a fascist country if two committed violent revolutionaries can gain access to the government's own files that proves their civil rights were abused. Do we have any positive review from you regarding the fact that over the past 10 years, there really have been significant victories for the left? High, the highest law enforcement officer in this land went to jail. His name is John Mitchell. He'd like the record to show that he went to jail while you went underground. Aren't you encouraged by that? 
the war was stopped. I'm encouraged now, by Now, if you promise not to give me a, a big speech about how awful things are, let's grant you that. Yeah. I want to know whether you're encouraged by that, by a system that gave you access to the classified documents of the FBI and information which has subsequently been established was illegal to develop. That is hardly the sign of a fascist system. I'm encouraged by a lot of things in the last several years. I'm certainly encouraged by the fact that, that uh, a, a large movement was built that didn't end the war, but that certainly limited the options of. Uh, All right. And I'm encouraged by that. And I'm encouraged by so the that, change. So you have no intention then of bailing out. You're not going to oh. become uh, uh, persons who uh, move to. In other words, apparently you feel enough about this system that it's salvageable. Do I have you right? We live here. We, this we is our country. are responsible like for making it a good society. Right. I assume you have a grave misgivings about capitalism. Yes. Uh, would you like to see that abolished? I think that as long as it's based on profit, we'll okay. have the violence to Would it be socialism it? or communism or a combination thereof? How it will look in the United States, I don't know. I can't right. tell you. All right. So we have then from you your own future commitment to this country and to actively participating in the political affairs of it. Absolutely. We don't, however, we cannot, however, end this interview with a declaration from both of you that under no circumstances ever again would you ever, ever engage in a political action such as, such as a, for example, a bombing. Fundamentally, what's changed in this country, I think, in the last 12 years, is the hearts and minds of people. And yours That's what's changed so in a profound way. So you wouldn't anything then. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I think that the structure of the system has not changed at all. What's changed is that there is a legacy now, a sense of people, of dignity, of pride, of a notion that people can be better, and of a notion that a movement can happen that can actually explode people's creative possibilities instead of diminish people, instead of make people powerless. That's what's changed. The system has not changed at all. Ayers and Dorn did not return to violence. Both got good jobs in academia and went on to lead bourgeois lives in Chicago. They kind of had the best of both worlds, radical politics and upper middle class incomes. And they raised Chesa Boudin as their fellow revolutionaries served decades in prison. They gave him a good life, summer camps, Ivy League education. But every month, as Chesa would say during his 2019 campaign for district attorney, he had to walk through steel doors and into a prison to visit his biological parents. In a sense, one can understand why Chesa Bodine would become an advocate for decarceration. But it's also worth asking, in what other country could the son of violent revolutionaries rise to become the chief prosecutor for one of its greatest cities. The same country that gives San Franciscans a vote to recall a district attorney who has decided to use his discretion to stop prosecuting criminals. We'll see what happens in this vote. But as Bob Dylan once said, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Well, uh, the re-education is delighted to have Richie Greenberg, who is the, I guess, the catalyst and the founder of the Recall Chesa Bodine movement in San Francisco. I'd like to welcome you to the show. Richie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. 
So I want to start off and I want to just, why did you, I guess more than a year ago, begin this recall effort for uh, Chesa Boudin? What was the factor in it that that led you to to start this movement? So yeah, it's about a year and a half ago is when okay. this all launched. So Chesa Boudin was elected in November of 2019 and he was sworn in the first week, January of 2020. And Based on his dismal performance, his record of not prosecuting those criminals who were deserving of prosecution, the firing of the city's seven most experienced top prosecutors and other issues, uh, one year into his reign at the, uh, the helm of the district attorney's office, so one year later is when I began the effort to have him ousted. So he he pretty much earned his own recall is how I look at it. There are some detractors out there that say that an effort to, to pull him out of office started the moment that he was sworn in, and that's really not true at all. I should know. <laughs> but the other thing to know is when, when this all started, I first went with online, the change.org service mm-hmm. their site and this started as actually a demand that he resign immediately not a recall effort through the department of elections so many of us including myself were so fed up with what we had seen what we'd learned what was the media what was already happening for those 12 months of him in office we said get out now here's a petition online and within 10 days we received 15 thousand signatures i printed out those 15 after redacting addresses and stuff and submitted it to mayor london breed and the board of supervisors which was our city council and said to everyone in city hall we've had enough here's 15,000. we want you to now take action to do whatever you can to encourage immediately the bodine get out Okay, well, I I have to say, I mean, you are somebody who ran as a Republican in 2018 for the San Francisco uh, mayor. And, you know, San Francisco is a very, very left wing city. I get the sense that, you know, and it's kind of extraordinary because the polling right now seems that you're going to win on the recall vote, you know, this week. It's coming up this week because we're airing this one anyway, but you're going to win. And I would imagine that, you know, you are a bit of an outlier politically in San Francisco. So what's happened in terms of building? I mean, I'm not talking about this issue. I'm just saying what has happened in that you've been able to apparently it looks like you've gotten a lot of San Francisco residents who maybe normally wouldn't necessarily share your broader politics to agree on this. What, what is going on in San Francisco and with Chesa Bodine that has kind of given you the success? So the run for mayor back in 2018 was my last real effort as a politician to run for office. Since then, I have left the Republican label. I'm independent, no party preferences. We call them here in San Francisco, NPP. And I'm, I've always been a moderate in, in all aspects and the thing that we are really grateful for is that there's mostly level-headed 
maybe even single issue voters here in the city. And you don't have that whole big block of hundreds of thousands of left wing progressive anarchist Marxists that all vote together. They don't. And that's what's making this uh, work. So who I am, me as a person, my background, my ancestry, my religion, my all of this, my skin color has nothing to do with this effort, has nothing to do with success or failure. It just, we needed someone to step up and get the ball rolling. And that, that was me. So but I wanted, I wanted to get what changed since 20, since the beginning of 2020. I mean, it seems to me that he was elected in 2019. So obviously he had a lot of people behind him then. And I would imagine if you would have pulled for it, although it's impressive to get 15,000 votes in, in, in 2021, you probably would not have, if you had a vote that day, you probably, he probably still had more, but he has really lost a lot of support, particularly in the Asian community. What, what is, talk to me a little bit about like how the city has gotten worse as a result of his policies. That's what I want to try to get at. Okay. So those are a couple of different uh, issues okay. there, but it's okay. But first of all, uh, Teresa Bodine did not win in a landslide. Nowhere near that. Okay. We have this thing and the pesky little method of voting here called ranked choice voting, which not every city or state is familiar with. But uh, ranked choice voting is sort of an instant runoff where typically elsewhere in old school methods, if you have a race with multiple candidates and not and, and there's no clear winner more than 50% from any of the candidates that are running. Instead of having another runoff a couple of months later by having the top two face off against each other, they have this mechanism where we voters say, okay, here's who we want as our candidate to win. And if they don't win, then here's the number two choice. And if they don't make it, here's our number three choice. So each election right. with, you know, it just trickles up and then the votes are, are recast to where it would go to the next until someone hits over 51%. That's what happened with Chester Bodine. He was in a race with four, uh, of, he was one of four candidates, three experienced prosecutors and him as the outlier, him as the person that had no prosecutorial experience whatsoever, him as the person who exploited the loophole that San Francisco doesn't have a rule, a law that says that in order to run as a candidate, for DA, you have to have some sort of DA's office experience. So he was able to just exploit that loophole in the first round tally of votes from the city. He got only 36%. The voters voted for the other three in their first picks. So if this was a, a normal kind of election, he would have lost because then there would have been a runoff between him and the number two. Oh, I see. And, and no way would they have then gone and backed him and swapped over. So, but he got enough second place votes. Third, to put, yes. That, got it. Okay. That's right. So that's very important when we look at what the, the potential is. So he's facing his, his self. He is not running against the candidate now for next election day, next week. He's running against himself, his own policies, his failures, his successes. And, okay, but 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 yeah. let me let me put it like this. Do you do you suspect that there will be people voting for the recall who were who are experiencing what might be called buyer's remorse, who might have supported Chesa and now don't? And why do you think that is? That's what I want to. Well, I, I don't think that I know it because okay. my, myself and my recall team that we have been out on the streets for nearly a year and a half. 
first gathering signatures last year, talking to voters. And the signatures, most of it was done either by mail to people's homes, voters' homes, and they return it signed in an envelope. Or we were out on the streets. We were at farmers markets and elsewhere gathering signatures. And that's the best method to be able to gauge public sentiment, the best method to have interface. And, sure. And we had people coming up. They saw, saw us from across the street. We had our little table and our stand and our recall sign. And they would come running over, almost getting, you know, cutting off traffic, screaming, like, give me that effing pen. I will sign a thousand times to get this guy out. And that happened over and over and over again. Men, women, young, old, didn't matter. Everyone felt the same way. And then as we got to talk with them, they, many of them said, I'm a lifelong Democrat, a lifelong progressive, a lifelong liberal, a San Francisco lifelong. And we can't believe this guy won. I want him out. And then there were plenty of people that said, I felt duped. I voted for Chesa. I voted for him. I believed in his message. And now when we see what he's actually done to this city, I want him out as much as everybody else wants him out. And, and how would you describe for someone who doesn't live in San Francisco, maybe doesn't follow the story as closely, what did Chesa do in your view? It's what he did and what he didn't do. Okay. So, so you know, a, a lot of his supporters say that Bodine made campaign promises and he fulfilled them. Why do you want him out? And my reaction immediately is that is not a correct, true statement. He mm. ever ran on a platform or promise that he was going to defend and protect the most heinous criminals, the, the drug dealers. He never said that he was going to protect the drug dealers, which is what has caused this huge problem in our city now with a virtually 24-hour uh, 24-7 open drug market right just to the east and south of San Francisco City Hall. And this is because he's declined to prosecute or he's basically gone for such minimal sentencing that they bear, it's, a, it's not even a slap on the wrist? No, it's not minimum sentencing. He just releases them. And okay. this has been documented. It's been talked about. These are quality of life crimes that he does not want to prosecute. That's not a quality of life crime. Quality okay. of life crime would be public urination, blocking the sidewalk, graffiti. Right. Just the minimal either break-in robbery, something simple, smashing a window. That's not what we're talking about here. These drug dealers who the majority of them are from Honduras that are dealing with fentanyl and, and have led to nearly, just I think we're at 1,800 deaths now. That's not a quality of life crime. Marijuana potentially would be a quality of life crime. But this is something, the most lethal drug out there now that is wreaking havoc across the, across the country. He has this policy now, and he has said this multiple times, that he believes that these drug dealers have been trafficked here to sell, uh, to, to deal, and that if we arrest them, then their families back home will be hurt. Or, or He said that? You know, yes, he has said that. We have it on tape. He actually said it back in 2020 at a town hall. And that is, it's, it's pretty widely distributed now. So that is right from his mouth. And we look at that with red flags and horrendous. Like, how can you claim this? How can you say that? How can you now develop your own policy to deal with foreign? It's, it's like a foreign policy issue when you need to stick to San Francisco law. 
And the way that we can prove two different, two different examples is one that there are released from multiple sources, even up to just a couple of weeks ago, showing his effectiveness in prosecution, how many crimes he has charged, how many have been dismissed, how many have been brought uh, to trial, how many convictions won. And in the category of narcotics, distribution, drug dealing, and all of that, there's virtually zero. He is not prosecuting them at all. And number two is that we have had several arrests, indictments, trials, and convictions of the same type of drug dealers done on a federal level. There have been federal cases made with a federal grand jury coming down on two or three individuals and they won. So if this was entirely a federal issue and every drug dealer was prosecuted federally, you'd see a very different outcome right now. You'd see a very different atmosphere in the, in the, in the market or open market because every dealer would know that they are subject to federal prosecution. And so Jessup Dean is looked at as being someone who is actively pr uh, protecting the drug dealers because anyone that is arrested is practically within a matter of hours back out on the streets. You think he's effectively, through lack of enforcement, legalized drugs? Well, yeah, that's an extrapolation out of that. But yeah, by, by not having a dealer held accountable, by not doing what he can to protect us, uh, there, there have been like healthcare workers and emergency workers that met have accidentally come in contact with fentanyl who have gotten ill, sick, died uh, across the nation. And so, yeah, in a sense, it's like he's trying to make the, the drug not, not be a, a punishable offense. I want to get into, if I could now, Chesa Bodin is one of a number of kind of a new kind of, of district attorney and prosecutor that gets a lot of funding from foundations, what sometimes it's called dark money, George Soros. And they seems to have this sort of philosophy of decarceration, the idea that we have approached crime in such a way that perpetuates it and punishes really poverty. Can you talk a little bit about that, that sort of why this is more than just a San Francisco story? Because you do find these kind, that similar kinds of prosecutors in recent years in other big cities, and we have seen a subsequent rise in, in crime. So whenever you encounter across the, across the country a candidate running for office that is throwing out those specific phrases, decarceration, de decarceration restorative justice, mass incarceration, run. Run <laughs> like there's a, you know, a, a lion that is, that is running after. Do not believe them. Do not accept their propaganda rhetoric. And, and myself and a few of us, we, we look at this as being like as if they're in a cult trying to, to suck you in. Chessa is a cult leader. He is not a prosecutor. And so using the title district attorney is disingenuous. He got elected as a district attorney but he's not doing the job of a district attorney. He doesn't deserve to be called a DA. He had no experience prior and his 
policies, his philosophies, and what he's actually done by shutting down our city's criminal justice system show and prove he had malintent from the start. And it's only gotten worse over time with examples of what has happened to our city here with with, with multiple innocent people being being hurt or killed, uh, the Asian community being beaten, individuals, and and him not really prosecuting them. So it's as if he has taken the side of the criminals, doing what he can to ever, to prevent anyone from ever going into jail. It's like they must never, ever be sentenced to jail. And we see the same script being used by candidates around the country. He was recently down in, in LA last year or so with, with George Gascon, which was actually Chesa Bodine's predecessor. But then earlier this year, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg was trying the same thing. And we have next week, which is primaries all up and down uh, uh, the state of California, uh, down in Santa Clara County, is what seems to be another clone of uh, Chesa Bodine, who also is a career defense attorney, a public defender who says he's running on the platform of criminal justice reform and the restorative justice, mass incarceration, the same thing. And people down there in Santa Clara County, which is where San Jose is and the southern part of Silicon Valley, really need to be sure that they understand that this is not someone that you should ever support. I want to just follow up a little bit there, which is to say that there, there strikes me that there, there can be very reasonable and probably correct arguments for criminal justice reform, particularly if you think that we are overcharging sort of street level marijuana, things like that. But this is something very different. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between what would be common sense criminal justice reform that most that you would maybe support versus this more radical agenda, which has made San Francisco so unsafe. Yes. Well, you know, I myself and pretty much everyone <laughs> believe that, you, for example, let's look at marijuana, right? You don't need to be throwing people in jail, jail for decades for uh, simple marijuana possession. Um, that is what actually Chesa Bodine himself has says that the war on drugs is a failure. And he he keeps pointing back to marijuana, and but yet we're not talking about marijuana. We're talking, we're talking about, about fentanyl, for example. But you can't use that as an excuse to shut down the whole criminal justice system, and that's what he's done. Another example is here in San Francisco. We haven't had an issue of mass incarceration for years, dating way back before Chesa had been in office and several DAs before him and the sheriff's office. We have had barely even 50% of the the city's jails, the population is just, it's just not there. What Bodine does and others like him is they use these generalized, these, these national talking points where maybe there are different corners of, of the country where their jails are overcrowding or there's certain targeting of types to be arrested and thrown in jail, but that does not happen here. It hasn't happened here in years. And yet there are some you know, farthest left progressive voters that are either purposely or, or just they don't understand that the job of the DA is not to defend the criminals. He's not a defense attorney. DA does not mean defense attorney, right? He's supposed to be prosecuting. And yet 
they believe in his defense message. And that's how he got elected. But, you know, he's running a playbook and he's distributed a playbook and getting support by these very wealthy people who then we have to now go against them and say, why did you support this individual, Chesa Bodine, and his policy that is bringing down one of the country's most beautiful, one, one of the, the shining beacons of, of, of America here in San Francisco because of your decision and to, to fund and to back him. And, and we actually have compiled lists, gone through all of his major donors, back those who have backed him to, to get elected and then you know, now to, to, to support him and oppose his recall. There are some Silicon Valley, very well-known Silicon Valley families, philanthropists who have given hundreds of thousands or even millions to not only directly to him, to Bodine's committee, but to another organization. There's a PAC out there called Real Justice PAC, and they've been pretty active in the last few years to either get these, these progressive DAs elected or now to help defend those who are being recalled. But I don't like using the word progressive DA. And I don't think anyone should be mm -hmm. using the word progressive DA. It doesn't make sense. They're not progressive and they're not DAs. They are wolves in sheep clothing. They dupe voters. They're actually still public defenders working actively to get elected and then to shut down the criminal justice system. Well, before we go, Richie, I just want to ask you about well, Chessa's unusual personal background, it was, it was well known that he was raised by Bill Ayers and his wife, Bernadine Dorn, because his biological parents were in prison for the Brinks robbery. And, you know, the, he was effectively raised by the Weather Underground. And some of our younger listeners may not remember this or weren't, born, weren't around at the time, but the Weather Underground were a serious radical domestic terrorist group in uh, the 1970s. Is it fair to kind of bring this up when discussing Chesa Bodine? You know, we, in our country, we, we tend not to blame the children for the sins of their parents. But in this particular case, it does seem that the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. So you are absolutely right. At the beginning of the recall last year, the effort, I did everything I could to not blame his parents, right? That whatever his background was, wherever he came from, let's just judge him on his merits, not on the fact that his parents, actually his, his natural parents, which were David Gilbert and Kathleen Bodine, they right. were the, those were his natural parents. Those, they were the ones that were incarcerated in prison for, for decades for that. His mother just passed away a couple of weeks ago. His dad was serving time in, in jail and was his sentence was commuted and he was basically let out by Andrew Cuomo from New York governor on his way out. So, you know, one would hope that if you come from a controversial or difficult background, family upbringing, that you could see the difference between right and wrong as, as a kid up to a certain point, a certain age, and then you could learn what your family or your, your surroundings was, how it was negative and how it could have negatively affected you 
and you can overcome this. You can break out from this. And as an adult, you could either shun it or figure out how to, you know, either expose it or, or not, not, not succumb to it. But clearly that's not what happened here with Bodine. Bodine, he's written several books and he's given lots of interviews where he talks, he laments about the requirement for him to then, to see his parents, he would have to go to jail and see them there. And that really affected him. And as you said, the apple doesn't fall from the tree. That doesn't mean that he's out there bombing the nation's capital or being involved with uh, shooting up uh, Brink's car. But I think he does set his policies suggest that he agrees with this very radical critique we associate with the Weather Underground and others from that era that the people who are in prison are victims of a system that is more criminal than whatever crimes they committed. Well, that's a, it comes from Michel Foucault. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a radical notion, but it basically, you know, we, you, you hear that in universities, but you know, when you've got a district attorney who believes that this is what you get. Yeah, that, that is true. And you know, those, those catchphrases that he used the systemic racism and, and all of this, a lot of it's an excuse just to try and get the vote so that way once he's in, he can then wreak havoc on the criminal justice system. We, we know that. We see that. He also uses a catchphrase that is a very disingenuous, manipulative, exploitive thing. He, he talks about we need to examine the root cause of crime. And this is very problematic as well. And any time that there is any decisions, any policies, anything that, that, that he comes across, and even those who, if there's well, a specific attack, poor people or minorities have no agency that, or that everybody who is in that situation is resorts to a life of crime. When in fact, lots of people choose not to do that, who are, who are born without means or, you know, right. And, and it is, it's, it's a, it's a racist kind of view in, in itself as well, where he's assuming that all certain category of races uh, are all being targeted because they all are, have been perpetrators or will be perpetrators. So it's, it's a mess. It's a, it's a whole. Well, mess. but I mean, to steel man the argument. Yeah. yeah. I think that the leftist would say something along the lines of the law, them, the laws themselves are designed to keep whites, men and the wealthy in power. And so the laws themselves are unjust. And there have been times in American history, Jim Crow, slavery, we can go through the list where laws were unjust and civil disobedience and even violent disobedience, so to speak, was probably merited or worthwhile. But when you're talking about prosecuting people who are selling a drug as dangerous as fentanyl, or you're talking about not uh, pressing serious charges against people who have who are repeat offenders who, who then go out and commit more crimes, I, I fail to see that at that point, I fail to understand, well, what, how is the law that they violated somehow illegitimate? Unless you're saying all of these laws because the state itself is illegitimate. And that's what I was trying to get at with that question. Yeah. So, so what I had said is the, the most recent catchphrase that he throws out is examining the root cause of yeah. crime. And he uses it as, a, as an excuse constantly now. So when you have the you have the repeat offenders, when you have the people who have gone out and, and beat or killed um, vulnerable uh, the Asian population, or go out and mass and participate in a mass looting of a retail department store, and so on and so on. Instead of going through the 
criminal justice system and bringing these perpetrators in to face the music, he says, we need to to address the root cause, which right. well, that's not possible. You can't do it. If the root cause can never act really, really actively and efficiently and actually be addressed, that's just a way of trying to stall or dismantle criminal justice itself. I mean, we you, you can't do that. So this is just another example of how Bodine is one who, among all of around the country, that simply don't want justice. They just they, they don't want accountability perpetrators of crime. Richie Greenberg, thank you so much for your time. We will all be watching this recall election, and I really appreciate you coming on The Re-Education. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast, and if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.